0: This is the Airplane Geeks podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. I'm Max Flight, and this is episode 762 of the show where we talk aviation. Now, next week, we're getting the regular crew together with a guest, so you can look forward to that. Meantime, in this episode, we have two interviews that Brian and Micah recorded for the Journey is the Reward podcast. One interview is with a P-40 Warhawk owner and pilot. The other is with the assistant chief pilot at United Airlines. First is Tom Richard. He's a Curtis P-40 Warhawk owner and pilot. And recently, a photo Warhawk shootout was held at the American Dream Sky Ranch. That's a private strip, which is also home to Warbird Adventures. They're a vintage aircraft flight school that offers private pilot, aerobatic, and tailwheel training. Warbird Adventures also provides flights in World War II aircraft. Well, Brian and Micah talked with Tom about Warbirds, the P-40 in general, and the very interesting history of the P-40 that Tom owns. Tom tells us that the P-40 is the only aircraft that flew in every single theater of the war every single day. Tom describes the acquisition and restoration of his aircraft in his aviation school. Here's the conversation.
1: We're speaking with Tom Richard of Warbird Adventures. And Tom, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me on board.
2: Tom, I have to say, you have made my list of biggest regrets in 2023 by not being able to attend the Warhawk Shootout.
3: (laughs) That was quite a success. I have to tell you, that was a really neat weekend that all of us managed to put on. That was uh, definitely memorable. We're going to have to do that again.
1: Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about Warbird Adventures in general, and then let us know about the Warbird Shootout.
3: Yeah, Warbird Adventures is a company that I started 25 years ago, and we are primarily a T-6 Texan flight school. That's what we've been doing. We've been offering checkouts and training in the T-6 for a long time, and we've expanded a little bit in a few other planes over the years. Uh, but we were based in Florida since uh 1998 through uh, 2021, and then uh, now we have uh, moved up to South Carolina to our new base of operations, which is at the American Dream Sky Ranch, which is a private Grass strip that we operate from. It's a really, really lovely place. So that's what we're about.
2: And what part of South Carolina is that?
3: So we're pretty much equidistant between Columbia, Greenville, and Augusta. We're right in the middle, wide open airspace out in the country.
1: It's fantastic. Nice. And what Warbirds are a part of Warbird Adventures? What aircraft do you, do you have to fly?
3: So we currently operate the T-6, of course. We have several of them that we've been teaching for many years. Uh, we do have uh, our P-40 War Arc, American Dream. Uh, that we primarily do air shows in at the moment. Uh, we also operate smaller tail draggers. We have a Citabria that we do primary and tailwheel training in, so people get to solo a tail dragger right off the bat, which is the only way to learn to fly, in my opinion. We have a um, Super Decathlon with a set of extreme wings that we teach aerobatics in. We do a lot of spin endorsements and things like that. And we have uh currently a Super Swift to do type-specific checkouts in. And uh, we have a few other things coming down the pipe as well.
1: And when you said you had the the Warhawk shootout, I hear war, Warhawk, I think P-40, and I think obviously Flying Tigers, but did you have a bunch of P-40s down there? Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah,
3: that's correct. So um, we do a lot of maintenance, of uh, Warbird maintenance primarily, and uh, several of my clients' airplanes happen to be here, which is why we put this on, and they were happy to partake. So we ended up having three P-40s on this little grass strip in the middle of the country of South Carolina which is uh, rather unusual because I don't think there's an airport in the world that has three P-40s on it other than mine, in fact.
2: Wow. Yeah. I know that there's one out here in a airport by me out in Chino, California, at the Plains of Fame. Boy, having their plane go fly with your guys' planes, that'd be incredible.
3: Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure at some point in the future that we're going to do an actual P-40 gathering. That's not what this was. We just happened to have three of them at the same place at the same time. I think there are two P-40s based in Chino, as a matter of fact. Yeah, Yanks Air Museum
1: has one also. Do you know offhand how many P-40s are actually still flying, still airworthy and and in the air?
3: Well, so that's a number that uh, is a little hard to pin down. I think uh, actively flying is probably around 13 to 15 airplanes or so. There's probably 30, or perhaps as many as 40, that could be made airworthy in, in, short, in a short order. They're estimated to be about 75 or so worldwide, and there are several dozen projects under restoration right now. It's, uh, I'd like to say it's uh, pretty much an up-and-coming fighter in numbers and uh, popularity.
2: Now, there seems to be several versions of the P-40. There was the Warhawk, the Kittyhawk, and the Tomahawk. Why the different names for the same aircraft? Well, first off, the Tomahawk was the first
3: models, A, Bs, and perhaps a C on the U.S. side of things, and they were also sold worldwide. However, in the Commonwealth, they named them Kitty Hawk across the board. Every single airplane is a Kitty Hawk to the Australians and the Brits, for example. We named all the later models, anything past the C, a Warhawk. and So that's an American name. So all the way up through the N model is the Warhawk.
2: Okay, so just the different variations got a different
3: name. That's correct. And of course, the Commonwealth calling them Kitty Hawk, which was confusing to us over here.
1: Can you give us a little bit of history of of the P-40 just in general? I I mean, a little bit historically about where it comes from. Everybody, you know, when they think about World War II fighters, sometimes they think about a P-38. Most of the time they think about a P-51 Mustang. Oftentimes they think about a Spitfire. But the P-40 seems to get left out. But it's got an important history.
3: Oh, sure. Well, so the thing about the P-40 is it was designed to defend the Atlantic and Pacific coastlines. People don't realize that was its purpose. It was not designed to be an escort fighter, which were more uh, the desires of the later fighters. So they, uh, they were very good close air support and low altitude aircraft because they only had a single stage, single speed supercharger. So below 10 or 15,000 feet, it is a very high performing airplane. At the time, it was the best we had, obviously. Once you start going up in altitude, it poops out because it simply doesn't have a two-speed, two-stage supercharger like um, or a turbocharger like the later airplanes did. So that's where it uh, falls down in comparison to the later fighters. But as far as a low-altitude dogfighter, very, very hard to beat. Even with the later airplanes, weren't able to turn and and uh, and dogfight with the P at low altitude, which makes it very exciting. The um, airplane performs very well below 250 and 10,000 10, feet.
1: What a lot of people don't realize is that uh, the power plant inside the P-40, that, that, that Allison, uh, I think was a V-1710. I can't remember exactly, mm-hmm. but that was the same power plant that was originally in the Mustang, which was considered a dog until they, I mean, it had the same kind of ground attack capabilities of the P-40. It wasn't any wasn't quite as special as what it became when they added the the Packard or the the Rolls-Royce Merlin.
3: Yeah, so there's a a lot of history there. So first off, the government had promised Allison that Honeywell was going to produce a turbocharger to latch on to the Allison and make it a high-altitude engine. Unfortunately, that did not come into fruition until much later and didn't work out. So Allison missed out on the production of a high-altitude engine. uh, They could have easily built something that would have been better than the Merlin. And they did, in fact, later in the war. It was called the G6. And that was a 2,000 horsepower power plant that we ended up putting in the P82, which far outperformed the Merlin. However, that wasn't available at the time. Now, the P51 originally wasn't slated to do what it ended up doing. So the, the Allison was was by default the engine of choice. That wasn't necessarily a, a good marriage because the Mustang is quite heavy. You know, it's 1,300 pounds heavier than the, than the P40. If you don't have the, uh, the promised turbochargers, it isn't going to work. The Merlin was a great stopgap measure for that airframe, and it worked out really well throughout the war. But obviously, if they had put a uh, 1710 G6 in the a, in a, in a Mustang, that would have been an absolute monster of an airplane. So it wasn't that the Allison was a uh, worse engine by any stretch. As a matter of fact, it's much more robust, more reliable, less maintenance, much tougher parts. Uh, if you look at the Merlins that they run in Reno, for example that they pump up the horsepower they substitute a bunch of parts for for Allison parts cuz they're more robust so the Allison's a fantastic engine uh, it's just that the earlier versions that we ended up with in the P40 was not slated for high altitude use but if uh, if you ask me if i had to operate one or the other hands down the Allison would be, is, is the engine of choice there's a there's an ongoing joke in the race industry that if you take a Merlin and an Allison disassemble them, put all the parts in the big pile and start picking up parts to build the ultimate engine, you're going to end up with an Allison because it's much much more robust, much tougher
2: engine. If Allison would have been able to build that second engine, the more powerful one would have been able to fit in the P40?
3: Not directly, but they would have obviously adapted to it. It would have fit in the P51. Uh, The P51 engine compartment is is, uh, configured differently. Because the uh, Merlin obviously has the large inner cooler and the large supercharger and so on. So that, that was the idea later on. And then, of course, Rolls-Royce also came out with a Griffin to uh, make that a drop-in replacement for the Merlin, which was also a great development. So anyway, there, there was uh, there was a lot of things going on at the time. that was all about production and, and uh, trying to outproduce the enemy. And uh, um, Allison got stuck with a single-speed, single-stage supercharger. And so the purposes were limited,
1: of course. There we go. So where did your P-40 come from? What's what's its history? Oh,
3: fascinating. It was uh, flown in the U.S. Army Air Corps. It has a 42 serial number. It was, was finished in uh, spring of 43. It was pretty much immediately shipped over to New Guinea uh, to the 30-mile base and the 49th Fighter Group. It was piloted by uh, Lieutenant Joel Thorvaldson. And on uh, September 13, 1943, they got into a horrendous dogfight. And he managed to uh, confirm... Uh, The shoot down of a zero and a Betty bomber. So he's got two confirmed kills. There's also a second probable to the airplane. But then he took a round to the engine. They don't know if it was ground fire or uh, air to air, but he ended up losing control of the propeller, oversped it, and eventually the engine failed. And so he was uh, forced to uh, put it down into a field next to a river in New Guinea. He uh, torched the radio with his uh, signal pistol, and he actually received an army injury in the process. He had a uh, jungle knife. That he tried to hatch, ha- hack his way out of the jungle with for about a day or so. Didn't succeed. He came back to the airplane. And uh, then his friends uh, were circling. And they, they spotted him. And they found him. And they tossed him a uh, raft and some provisions. And he evaded the enemy capture for another five days. The Japanese were after him, obviously. He was eventually picked up by the uh, Australians. So Joel ended up becoming a full bird colonel uh, during Vietnam retired uh, and uh, didn't pass away till 2014. he was very much aware of the restoration when they found the airplane in the 90s in the jungle it was an australian recovery team that picked it up they uh, it was a 10 plus year multi-million dollar restoration and it flew again for the first time in 2009 and joel's number one concern was the battle damage to the engine he wanted to find out about it and get concrete proof because of the arm injury he had uh, put in for the Purple Heart, but they wouldn't give it to him because the authorities thought it was simply a mechanical problem and not battle damage. Why well, they confirmed it was battle damage, so he ended up getting his uh, Purple Heart in the early 2000s.
1: Oh, that's wow. wonderful. What a story. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Yeah.
3: There are pictures and even video of his recovery at the Smithsonian.
2: Wow. And was he able to see the fully restored aircraft? They tried to
3: make that happen, but then he was in in poor health. So it never happened, unfortunately. I am, oh. however, in, in contact with his son. We were going to get together here a couple of years ago at Oshkosh, but then COVID hit. He was going to give us the jungle knife that he still has. and so we were going to
1: permanently mount it in the airplane. Wow, wow that would be great. That would yeah. be something fabulous, really. So what do you have to do to restore a P 40 that's sitting in the jungle for 50 years? I mean, I can't imagine what it would have looked like and, and how much work had to be put into it. You said it took, it took a decade. Well, what's, what's the first thing that you do in a situation like that?
3: Well, the first thing you do is take it apart and see what you have, right? See what's airworthy and what you have to replace. The beauty of vintage aircraft is, uh, you know, as long as you have the, or aging aircraft is the way the FAA puts it. Is that if you have the blueprints, you can reproduce any part for that aircraft for your own purposes for your own restoration. That's perfectly fine. So uh, the uh, Aeromotive Specialties down in uh, in Wangaratta, uh, Australia, did the job and they did a beautiful restoration. Just really fantastic work, uh, and they're that's what they specialize in is is P forty restorations. And they've gone around and recovered uh, multiple airplanes over the years, and they, they're still uh, restoring airplanes to this day.
2: So that must be a very expensive adventure as
3: well. Oh, yes. <laughs> There's nothing cheap about warbirds, especially fighters. It's a very, very expensive endeavor. No no question about it. And obviously tons of volunteer hours involved in these things.
1: I got to see the uh, the Collins Foundation P40 uh, a few years ago, about three or four years ago. And that was a reasonably recent acquisition for them. And they were very, very proud of that. And it's the first time I actually ever saw a P forty in a flesh. And boy, she, she's absolutely beautiful. Uh, just a, a gorgeous, gorgeous airplane. It really is. It's got beautiful lines and it and it doesn't get as much credit mm-hmm. as it should. How did you end up acquiring yours? How did how did it end up coming to you from from the jungle and from the restoration in Australia?
3: Well, I went down to Australia because because there's two or three companies actually over there that specialize in war and P-40 restorations. So I went down there some years ago now, that's eight, eight nine years ago, whatever it was, looked at all the different airplanes uh, and projects available to see what what I could possibly cope with. It turned out that I couldn't find anything that was uh, reasonable. I did see this airplane. It had just uh, been taken apart to be shipped to a, a recent buyer in Colorado. So I didn't really pay attention to this airplane very much because it was had it had just been sold, but I did see it there, and it disappeared out of my uh, radar, so to speak, at that point. And I think it was three or four months later. I was having lunch with one of my instructors, and he mentioned, "Oh, yeah, I was walking past a hangar up in Colorado the other day, and these guys were pulling a P forty out of a container." I know you really like P forty. I said, "Really." And they looked like they needed some help. So I brought the forklift over and I helped them out because he's a big Warbird guy and knows what he's doing when it comes to putting these things together. So he walked in and assisted them. That afternoon, I went and got an airline ticket and I flew up to Colorado uninvited. And I walked into the hangar and introduced myself because I had a lot of interest in this airplane, of course. So um, I ended up uh, getting to know both the mechanics and then uh, the owner shortly thereafter. And I assisted him with the airplane over the next four years, of flying the airplane and doing maintenance on it and so forth because he wasn't qualified in the machine so i helped him out we didn't put a lot of hours on it, i think about 12 hours or so over the four years because there was ongoing maintenance issues and i eventually wore him down and convinced him to let me have the airplane but <laughs> i told him the very first day the reason i'm here is because i want your airplane eventually he he let me have it and um then I had to figure out how to pay for it and uh, bring it home. So it's a whole other adventure there.
1: <laughs> so was your heart set on a P-40 from the beginning when you went to Australia? Or were you looking for an airplane yes. and not sure what it was going to be?
3: No, no, no. I, I've been I've been on the hunt for a P-40 for a while. I've flown multiple P-40s for other people over the years. And, and a bunch of other different fighters. And it was my absolute favorite airplane. Uh, I tell people all the time that the P-40 is not my favorite airplane because I happen to own one. I own one because it's my favorite airplane if that tells you something, I find the aircraft really fascinating. I call it the the pits of the Warbirds. It's just a wonderful aerobatic and flying machine in every regard. Granted, it's got some archaic systems and you really got to pay attention. It's a narrow gear and the uh, yeah. there's no ergonomics in the cockpit whatsoever. And the, the checkout is quite uh, complex compared to, let's say, the more ergonomic later fighters. But I find it charming. I think it's a lot more interesting to fly, but it's it's way more fun than any,
1: any other fighter. out there. And you've flown other fighters so you can really compare them side by side when you say that in terms of your, your yes. pleasure in enjoying them. Uh, and 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 mm-hmm. I'm assuming it's it, it's it's your it's your top choice. And if you have any of the warbirds that are out there, the single engine fighters, the the P40 is the one that you would say is number one. Do you have a number right. two? Oh, probably the Corsair. I'm worthy on that. Yeah.
2: yeah. 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 Again, I think two beautiful looking aircraft. Yes. Yeah, they are definitely my favorites as well. One of the things about the P-40, so something I didn't know, is that it actually started as a coastal protection aircraft here in the U.S. And I think most people are familiar with it through the China, India, Burma theater. And it served in every major theater of war. And I think most people don't know that.
3: It's it's actually a little bit more distinct than that. The P-40 is the only fighter to serve in every single theater of the war, every single day of the war. Really? Yes, that's a pretty significant uh, statement,
1: isn't it? Yeah, that really is. Every single day of the war. Yeah, it flew all the way up to uh, VJ Day.
2: Yeah, see, I did not know that. And again, I think just by watching war movies, listening to Mm -hmm. stories, you hear about it at the beginning of the war. And then other aircraft, I think, just became more popular. And yeah, I never realized that it flew till the end of the war as well.
3: Yeah, what people don't understand is that the the P40 wasn't full on production until November 1944.
2: Do you oh know how many were made in total?
3: Yeah, 13,738. So it's the third most numerous fighter produced on that on our side.
1: Wow. I was going to say that, uh, you know, being that uh, the P-40 is your number one choice and the Corsair is your number two choice, you're, you're our modern-day Colonel Boynton, aren't you, when it comes right down to it? <laughs> Probably nobody's ever called you that before, but that's what came to mind immediately. There you go. Yeah, yeah, no, I would, I'd never live up to that.
2: <laughs> all right, since I'm going through asking all the dumb questions today, The P-40 is referred to as a P, but yet it fought as a fighter. So why does it have an F as a designator? What's the P for?
3: Well, P is pursuit. And that was the predecessor to fighter, which came very late. Uh, As a matter of fact, right at the very end of the war, we didn't. I mean, the P-51 wasn't called an F-51 or F-6 until right at the very end. I don't know the exact date when that designation changed, but all the fighters of World War II were P's.
2: Okay. So it's simply a
1: name change. Yes. The Air Force changed their designation from pursuit to fighter. And the, at one point, like you said, the P-51 became the, the, the F-81, the P-82 became the F-82. And it's just the way that it went. I, in fact, uh, yeah, the P-80, I think, first started as a P-80 and then became an F-80, if I remember correctly.
3: I think you're correct. Yeah.
1: You fly the Texan, and I imagine the Texan is still a really good teaching tool because that's what it was developed as. Did you say you had two Texans down there? Yes,
3: currently I have two. Uh, The T-6 is by far the finest advanced trainer ever made. There's nothing that compares. It's the only aircraft to ever be designated the pilot maker. And it lays the groundwork to flying all the fighters, of course. Um, There's not an airplane in existence that will teach you more about flying in aviation than the T-6 does. It's a little bit like boot camp. First, it tells you how useless you are as a pilot, and then it slowly builds you back up. And when you finally figure out how to handle the T-6, you find it's exceptionally rewarding because when you do it right, you know you've done something in aviation. So it turns out that no matter what you fly, I don't care if it's a 150 or a 747, whenever you go back to whatever you fly normally after having flown the T-6, you will fly that airplane better. There is nothing that beats the T-6.
2: When they designed it, did they build in characteristics to make it difficult or challenging to fly? Or what gives it these properties? Well, so I think it was more of a fluke.
3: It kind of happened as the airplane developed. They started with a fixed gear BC1 and worked on it all the way up. And there were 13 different models of the T6. And one thing they did was they moved the wing and swept it. With that change, it accidentally ended up with a really nasty stalling habit. In, in that it's not unpredictable any way, shape, or form. And it's actually not even difficult. It is exceptionally unforgiving. And that's what makes it so fantastic. You have to do it right. If you do something wrong in this airplane, it's simply just going to slap you right across the face and let you know. It doesn't let you get away with anything, which is so fantastic. Some of the later airplanes are much more benign and forgiving. In World War II, on the U.S. side, the only fighter to ever be built as a two-seater was the P-40. All the other fighters were single-seat airplanes because the T-6 was the airplane to transition into those aircraft, and it made a lot of sense at the time, for sure.
1: And for our listeners listening in the UK, when we talk about the T-6 Texan, we're talking about the Harvard. It's the same airplane. (laughs) Yes. Always a different name change sometimes.
2: One of the things that I was really surprised at with that aircraft, and actually many aircraft of World War II, is just how large they are. It's a good-sized machine, yeah.
3: The uh, the T six has five feet more wingspan than uh, most of the contemporary
2: fighters. It's really interesting to see some of these warbirds and put it against a Cessna that I think most people are familiar with. Yeah, mm-hmm. they just they're just massive when they sit side by side. Yeah, that's true. the uh, The uh, Cessna I think it's
3: about a thirty six foot wingspan, I believe, and most fighters is only a foot more whereas the, the T-6 has a 42-foot wingspan. It's, a, it's, it's quite a bit bigger.
1: So when's the next uh, Warhawk shootout? Uh, we are probably going to have one this fall, in
3: fact. And it's really all dependent on our runway construction progress and uh, how fast the grass is going to grow. But tentatively, I'm hoping for uh, October, when the weather is still fantastic and uh, still dry. But our grass should have grown by then to be able to use the runway again. We're about to shut it down for a month or two here in the coming weeks for that very reason, because we need to grow grass.
1: So if people want to get in touch with uh, or Warbird Adventures or, or get to know more about the, the project and, and, and the company and, and want to learn to fly with you, what's the best way to do that?
3: Yeah, so our uh, flight school website is warbirdadventures.com. The airport that we have created here with our bed and breakfast and campground and so on and so forth is called American Dream Sky Ranch. And that's also americandreamskyranch.com. And the contact information is on there. Uh, we're easy to get a hold of. Flightwarbirdadventures.com is our email. You can get a hold of us very, very simply. Scheduled to come fly with us or come stay with us. Come visit. Whatever you like. We We are hoping to have a lot of aviation activity here in the future.
2: By your flight school, will you take a brand new student or are you just taking pilots that are currently certificated and teach them how to fly a warbird? We do both. We will do primary
3: training in our little Citabrias and decathlons where uh, you can show up without any experience whatsoever. And we will teach you how to fly the proper way right off the get go in a tail dragger and a small grass strip. And you will become an excellent pilot right off the bat. And, of course, we do type-specific checkouts in the warbirds and uh, aerobatic training and so on. So we run the gamut.
2: Yeah, that's actually one of the things that I say. I'm a scuba instructor, and I say that if you learn to scuba dive in the cold water in California, especially northern California with all the kelp, you're going to be a great diver and can dive anywhere in the world and be safe. So it seems like learning to fly in a tail dragger is probably very similar. Very much along those lines. You couldn't be more correct. Transitioning to nosewheel airplanes
3: and simpler, more modern machines after learning them to fly properly is definitely the easier and by far the better way to go. You're going to create the right skills right off the bat when you're learning the tail
2: dragger.
1: I love that attitude. That's the way it's got to be. You learn how to fly the tough ones and then you can ease off if you want to. That's right. Yep, absolutely. Tom, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. It was great having you, and hopefully we'll be able to get down there and visit your Warbird Adventures sometime.
3: I hope you do, and I expect you to hold uh, uh, some sort of live feed when we offer our shows here at the property.
1: Oh, that'd be fun. You invite us down, we'll do that. (laughs) Absolutely. Sounds great. Thank you very much for the invite, gentlemen. Thanks. Take care. Tom, thank you so much for
2: your time. Really, really appreciate it.
0: Next up is Captain Chris Dowell, an assistant chief pilot at United Airlines. Chris describes his career progression as a pilot and explains the role of the assistant chief pilot. He talks about customer service, substance abuse, and pilot training. Also, what a Czech airman looks for in a new pilot, and how new pilots today are different from those in the past with all the technology and automation now available. Chris also comments on Captain, First Officer, Teamwork, and CRM. Here it is.
1: We're talking with Captain Chris Dowell, Assistant Chief Pilot with United Airlines. Thank
4: you, Mike. I appreciate it.
1: Brian, you met Captain Chris through a really interesting way. Why don't you tell us what happened here? Captain Chris was one of my pilots on one of the
2: 3 million mile flights. I Unfortunately, I can't remember which one. Should have looked that one up before the show. But anyway, uh, when I went up and gave the flight crew their thank you card and, and seat back tray table hook, Captain Chris was kind enough to take note of the adventure that I was going through. And in a, I guess, week or so afterwards, I get a beautiful united coffee table book and some challenge coins. That was just, I think, one of the nicest things that any pilot had
1: ever done for me besides getting me to my home safe and sound. And you can't ask for more than that, other than your pilots and United pilots in particular have always gotten you home safe and sound. And that's the kind of service that we're looking for. So far, they have. And in this conversation with
2: Captain Chris, I think we wanted to get into some of the things that he gets to experience as being assistant chief pilot and what that group and organization does within United.
1: But before we do that, Chris, How did you get started with flying? I mean, you were at a senior level with one of the biggest, most wonderful airlines in the world, but how did you start flying? I
4: couldn't agree more. I think it's it's the premier airline in the industry. I have been with United Airlines now for 33 years, started as a civilian pilot, like many of them do, worked my way up through the normal civilian process, started flying in a small regional airline down in Houston, Texas, while I was working as a police officer trying to pay my way to... Earned flight hours and flight ratings. That progressed to a couple of interactions that I had with some gentlemen that were working as flight instructors at Continental Airlines at the time. And they mentored me through the process. Ended up going to work a few years later for Bar Harbor Airlines, which was uh, at the time going through acquisitions and mergers through Texas Air Corp. And they became the Continental Express system, which led to my transition to Continental Airlines. Which then led into my transition to United through the merger in the early 2000s. So it's been a, it's been not a not a unusual process these days in the airline industry, but uh, it's been an enjoyable one along the way. I've had a lot of other opportunities to work with the airline pilots association through uh, or with pilot recruiting here at United Airlines and a few other jobs. I can't say enough about the company that I work for. Again, I think it's the premier airline in the industry for a number of reasons. I'm just excited to talk to you about it.
1: Well, you said a couple of things that are just so near and dear to my heart. You said Bar Harbor Airlines. I'm coming to you from Portland, Maine. I, I, I miss them terribly, but they're still with us in one way or another. And absolutely, you you brought them back to me. And the other thing you said was Continental Airlines. I started with the first time I ever got real frequent flyer mileage and worked my way up. It was with Continental. I was living in Pueblo, Colorado, and wherever I flew, it was always from, started in Pueblo. And I was flying on Rocky Mountain Air on dash sixes and dash sevens into Denver, running, out. and this was DEN, this was the the old Denver airport. And running from one end of the terminal, the other to catch my flights, and you probably remember that very well, too. It was just great. And uh, I missed Continental when they disappeared, but then United really brought everything right back when they went with the merger.
4: You know, I, I told you I grew up in uh, Houston, Texas. Continental was the hometown airline, so obviously that was my choice when I was young and, and interviewing for airlines. It's just a bit ironic that I now find myself at the uh, at the tail end of my career at United Airlines because they both have heritage through the same organization, Barney Speedlines, if you remember. It's just a combination of a, a long career that has been very, very good to me.
1: Well, you said the tail end of your career, and it may be, but it makes sense because the tail end of every United airplane is continental, so it works perfectly.
2: <laughs> yeah, it has a nice continental globe on it. So, Captain Chris, since you've been with the airline for so long, you've had an opportunity to fly a whole bunch of different aircraft. Can you run through the aircraft that you have had the opportunity to fly?
4: Certainly, certainly. Following my transition from the regionals over to the mainline carrier, started on the uh, flight engineer panel in the 727. I was flying that out in the South Pacific out of Guam and then went over to Manila, Philippines, where I flew it on a uh, freight contract for one of the freight carriers through Continental Airlines. I transitioned from that to the uh, MD-80 back stateside, and then from there to the 757, 767, 777 as a a first officer, and then upgraded to captain on the 737, and then back to the 777 as a captain here.
2: So was there any difference going from a large aircraft to a smaller aircraft? I certainly understand the difference in getting your captainship on a smaller aircraft, but flying it, how was that adjustment?
4: So I worked my way up from the smaller airplanes, the MD-80s, DC-9s, up to the 777 in the right seat. And then when I made the transition back to the smaller airplanes from the 777 back to the 737, I was doing it at the same time I was making the transition from first officer to captain. So the responsibilities become much greater. The workload on the smaller airplanes is much greater, particularly for the first officers. It was a learning experience and something that I valued greatly in my in my time with the airline. I spent another 18 years on the 737. Many of those years were as a uh, line check airman. I spent a few years as a captain on the airplane and then was offered the opportunity to become a line check airman, uh, where I was doing basically quality control checking work on other captains. I learned a lot through that process. That's an incredibly valuable part of my career. I learned a lot about flying airplanes during that period of time.
1: Well, one of the questions that comes up sometimes is, you know, we hear pilots talking about their line check and their line check airmen that they fly with. And they hear sometimes captains or, or first officers talking about, I had to meet with a chief pilot. Neither one of those things are particularly said in a pleasant manner. And can you tell us a difference between a line check airman and a chief pilot? And then I want to ask you a little bit more about the chief pilot position.
4: Sure, sure. So the line check airmen is part of the airline's quality control system. We have some requirements through our AQP program that puts our captains through a line check over a period of time. That's a required part of their recurrent training process. The line check airmen are the ones that conduct those. They also conduct all of the initial operating experience for all pilots transitioning into that fleet. So a new pilot on the 737 would have to go fly with a line check airman on the 737. And again, it's part of our quality control process. When you transition from the flight training center in Denver out of the simulator and into the line, you're not just released into the fleet on your own. You have to go out and ride with that check airman and be approved through that process as well. The difference now as an assistant chief pilot here in LAX is that we manage all of that process. We manage that process. We manage the operational side as well as any personnel issues that come up with the pilots. So it's a little bit different a a position that I have now. Quite honestly, the position I have now as the assistant chief pilot is more similar to my role as an alpha representative than it would be as a flight instructor. And I've spent a lot of years doing that work as well.
2: I had the opportunity a few years ago to actually write a letter to the chief pilot based upon an incident that I was involved in. I was phenomenally upset with United and in particular the captain, hence the reason why I wrote the letter. And I'm not sure in hindsight, it was actually the best course of action for me and or if the captain was justified in doing what he did. So here's the story. I was on a flight from San Francisco to Singapore. United had a policy where if you were a 1K, they would block the middle seat. I was flying with a coworker and we were sitting in economy and we had seat A and C. The middle seat should have been blocked. There were a bunch of empty seats on the airplane, but yet they put someone in the middle seat between us. Prior to the flight, I went up to the gate at the desk and I asked them if they could move the person that was sitting there. And they asked why. And I said, Well, I wouldn't want to disturb the passenger because I'm traveling with my other coworker, who's also a 1K. And I'd really appreciate if you could move them. This went on for a few minutes. And one of the coworkers apparently only overheard part of the conversation and went to the pilot and said, We have an issue with a passenger at the gate who's saying that he's going to disturb the flight. We ended up boarding. The person was there. I was in the process of talking with the purser on board, asking if the purser would move the passenger to another seat. And the passenger was actually quite willing to move at that point. Another flight attendant came back with a gate agent who said, you need to get off the plane. The captain isn't comfortable flying you today. I asked for the captain to come back and talk and I could explain the situation they said, no, the captain won't come back and talk to you. Hence the letter that I wrote to the chief pilot because of how upset I was over the situation. Your opinion, was I right or wrong in that regard? If you were the captain, would you have come back and talked? Is it policy not to do that? And once a captain makes his decision, that's his decision. I, what, what are your thoughts on what happened?
4: That's a, it, it's an interesting story and it's not entirely unusual. couple of things there. One, yes, the pilots are told not to leave the flight deck to get involved in a disagreement. We have professionals in customer service that handle those types of uh, scenarios. We ask that our pilots leave that to the customer service professionals to handle rather than to uh, try and handle themselves. So, yes, he was probably told not to uh, go back and directly intervene. And it sounds like this is one of those deals where the story was a bit lost in translation between you and customer service and then ultimately to the captain. So the captain was probably doing what he was trained to do. Yes, I think you were proper in writing to the chief pilot, because again, when we operate a flight, we debrief our crews. There's no debrief with the passengers. So if you have an issue, speak up, let us know. If there's something we can do better, we certainly will the next time. That's our role as the chief pilot is to uh, field those types of those issues. If there's a way for us to do better, we absolutely will the next time around. I can guarantee you that. The chief pilots will get involved. They'll dive in and try and find out what the real translation was. And if there's there's a way they can improve that customer service experience, they're going to do that. Yeah, that's probably the best I can tell you on that story.
2: I think it was just an unfortunate event all around. I asked to speak with the service director when I got off the plane and the service director was the person that I was speaking with originally and had the conversation with. And he was surprised that we were offloaded because he clearly heard the entire story. Again, I was surprised that they didn't get him involved to begin with. And as a result. They ended up overnighting us because of course that was the only flight to Singapore. So they ended up spending money for two hotel rooms we only had one day in Singapore. Therefore, flying us to Singapore was no longer valid. We were then going to Hong Kong. So United had to reaccommodate us on the flight to Hong Kong. It was just a giant mess and I think very expensive for United when it could have been so very simple to have a more detailed conversation to find out what was really going on.
4: Yeah, I, I can't disagree with you. Sounds like it's a scenario where where things could go better. And I can tell you that the processes that we have in place are designed to do exactly that, find a way to make it go better. The one thing I'll tell you is that today, in this age, we have, as an industry, we have a lot of issues with customer interactions that don't go so well. And we're all doing our best to find processes and methods to alleviate those.
1: One of the constant things that Brian and I have talked about is, you know Brian being a 3 million miler and have flown so much on United and me being a, a loyal United patron too, the service we get in the sky on the aircraft is phenomenal. Can't ask for better. Absolutely great. However, the ground service never lives up to the same service that one finds in the air. And there seems to be a disconnect. And what is the best way that we can help United find a way to connect those two so that the ground service is as high a quality as what we find when we're on the airplane?
4: Well, let me ask this. Um, when you say ground service, what, what area?
2: It could be reservations, customer service, could be meals, could be transferring luggage. Really, every aspect of working with United on the ground, I always say, United lets me down.
4: That's one area that's a bit out of my area of expertise. Um, I deal primarily or almost exclusively with flight operations. So that's probably one I wouldn't be able to answer all that well.
1: That's fine. And and, and the question wasn't for you to to fix it. We would love to let Scott Kirby know because if Scott Kirby could fly with us, he would (laughs) say, oh, my God, (laughs) you know, how is this happening?
4: Well, I mean, along those lines, I can tell you that customer interactions, it's important. So if there's something something that you see as a customer that's not up to par, speak up, let us know. There are channels of communication uh, through the United website where uh, we welcome that interaction. And, and if there's something we can do better, we'd like to hear about it.
2: So people really do read feedback at united.com and customer care at united.com?
4: Absolutely. I can, I can promise you that.
2: Yes. Yeah, because I've never gotten a reply, and I'm fairly vocal over my opinions and feedback.
4: That doesn't mean that it's going unheard. I can promise that. Keep in mind, we fly millions and millions of passengers. We get a lot of email. So what? I'm not the most important one? What? <laughs> <laughs> to, me, to me, Brian, you are. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, Captain Chris, we're pretty good friends with another podcast called The Airline Pilot Guy. And he's a captain for a legacy major carrier. And one of the things that he says about his airline is that when they hire a first officer, they're actually hiring a captain. And they might have the position of being a first officer, but everyone that gets hired, they really look at, are they capable of being a captain? I'm assuming United has a similar policy.
4: Do you? Absolutely. We don't hire anybody without the intention of that individual becoming a captain for our airline. So that is absolutely integral to our application and interview process here as well.
1: And then it's a choice of that particular airman to determine whether or not he or she wants to ascend to a captaincy. I've met a number of people that say, no, I like it in the right seat and it's more more comfortable for me. And that's where I want to stay, regardless of seniority sometimes. Is that the case?
4: That is true. Uh, that's a personal choice on the uh, by the individual pilot. Of course, we like to see them transition to the left seat, but there is no, they call it an up and out program. That's never been a part of the United culture. It has been at some other legacy carriers, but it's definitely not here. Uh, whether or not you upgrade the captain is a personal choice that each individual makes on an individual basis. And, and uh, there's a number of reasons why they may choose to stay in the right seat. Rather than upgrade on the 737, for instance, they may just make a decision to stay in the right seat on a wide body aircraft, 787 or 777, and fly the international routes as a very senior first officer. But I would say that by and large, the majority of pilots make a decision at some point in their career to upgrade.
1: So it sounds like as assistant chief pilot, you're in a very high level management position. How often do you get to fly? Are are you flying a regular line or do you just kind of fill in as necessary?
4: We don't fly a regular line, but we are all flight qualified managers. We follow the same currency requirements that any other line pilot does. When we fly, uh, we fly where it fits in our schedules. Personally, I'm a triple seven captain. I'm based in Houston, even though I live and work in Los Angeles. So it requires me to travel to another base. We don't have a triple seven base here in LA, but so requires me to fly to another base in order to uh, fly my aircraft, but I get to do it fairly regularly. I would say once a month, I try and get out and fly a trip just to keep my hands in the operation. And honestly, I like to fly airplanes. So I kind of prefer to do that anyway.
2: But I think we were on a flight from Los Angeles to Newark on a 777, the more I think about this. So you didn't necessarily have to commute for that one, did you?
4: If I recall, the flight that I met you on, Brian, was actually from Los Angeles to Denver. And it was an unusual trip where we had an aircraft, uh, we call it an RON, it stayed stay on the ground here in, in Los Angeles overnight, returning from Honolulu, and then it continued on to Denver. So I called that captain and I asked him if he'd be willing to let me buy that portion of his trip. And uh, he said, yes, and I got to fly you to Denver.
1: Okay, that's what it was. How fortuitous for Brian, for sure, and how fortuitous for us here on the podcast. We're really we're really happy that that happened. That's just great. Thanks for buying out that, Captain.
2: <laughs> now, one of the things that I wanted to know about, really, what the job of a chief pilot is and what's the difference between being assistant chief pilot and chief pilot?
4: Uh, it, it's just an organizational thing. So each of our domiciles has a base chief pilot. And then that base chief pilot has one or two assistant chief pilots to assist him in the day-to-day operation of the airline. It's primarily personnel management. We ensure that the operation runs, or we, we do our best to ensure that the operation runs on time and as smoothly as possible. That can be anything from typical personnel issues, pilots needing lead requests, assisting with those types of things, currency requirements. It could be a number of things on a day-to-day basis.
2: But it's so it's really a managerial position for pilots.
4: Yes. Yes. You know, I, I spent um, we haven't talked about it a lot, but I spent a lot of years as a uh, representative for Alpha uh, working as a pilot advocate. It's very similar to that role. Pilots are human beings and they, they, they do have uh, family needs, that kind of thing. We can assist them with those as well as just the normal airline operational issues that arise.
2: In my career, I've never had the opportunity to work with a union, and I think some people are very much in favor of unions. Others are opposed to them. Unions oftentimes seem to be at battle with management. It seems like since you've been on the union side and on management side, that gives you a very interesting perspective on the job and working with the company.
4: You're right. It's a unique dynamic. I'm very fortunate to work for an airline that values the leadership experience that I had, saw that as a positive when I applied for the role that I have now. And it's not just me. I can tell you that United Airlines recognizes that pilots that have worked their way up through the leadership roles within the Airline Pilots Association are a value-added asset to the airline operation. It is unique. I'm thrilled that United handles it the way they do, because that leadership does translate quite well to the role that I'm at now.
1: As a supervisor and in management dealing with pilots, there are all sorts of issues with substances going on in the country these days. Now, the FAA has a zero tolerance policy, and I'm sure United does too. But how do you deal with this strange situation where we have drinking as part of our culture, marijuana is becoming part of our culture, how does United, how does the FAA handle situations like that? And are pilots and are people aware of it in general? Is it, is it a top level area that needs to be discussed? And what should our public, what should the public know about
4: it? It's a fair question. I'll answer it this way. I said earlier that pilots are human beings. United Airlines recognizes that from time to time, issues like you describe will come up. And I also talked about how we have a very close relationship with Alpha on a lot of areas. Alpha has done and they have made great strides to develop programs to assist pilots to work through those issues before they become a problem. United is very supportive of those programs. We advertise those to the pilots on a regular basis so that they're aware of them. And we encourage them to reach out on an anonymous basis to some of these programs and work through those issues before it becomes an issue that we have to deal with in other ways.
2: So I think that's great where pilots can come to you or the airline and say, hey, there's an issue. It needs to be addressed. I need help. And help is provided to them.
4: That's exactly right. We provide very high-level professional help, and we encourage them to participate if they feel a need.
1: When you're flying with a new pilot, you were, you were a line pilot for a long time. When you're flying with a new pilot and uh, or, or, or doing that first check ride, what kind of things do you look for?
4: That's a good question. Obviously, as a check airman, you're always looking for their skills to be where they need to be to join the fleet as a line pilot. But just as importantly, we're looking for personality traits that would lead you to want to be a crew member with this individual for another 30 years. One of the uh, common things that you hear from the uh, recruiting office is, can I sit in the cockpit with this guy for another 40 years? It's a legitimate concern. United has a definite culture. And I can tell you that part of that culture is that we hold each other to a very high standard. We like to think that it's uh, crew member driven. We have a good time doing what we do when we're flying an aircraft, but we're doing it in a way where where we're holding each other to a very high standard operationally. So that's what we're looking for. We're looking for somebody that fits into that mold, somebody that will continue to uh, keep that standard that we all enjoy here.
2: And I think that's really interesting that you say that. There was a flight that I was on. The captain, instead of him making his normal boarding announcement, he actually got out of the flight deck, got on the PA system, stood in the aisle way, talked a little bit about his background. He was a military pilot. Can't remember what branch of service. And he said, basically, we have a contract. I have a contract to get you to where you need to be. You have to respect us along the way. I'm in charge of this aircraft. If you don't behave, you're not going to like the end results. I just thought that that was a great way to bring about the conversation and say, you need to respect us. We need to respect you. We're going to get there safely.
4: Yeah, uh, we encourage our pilots to get out and talk to the passengers. Obviously, that's uh, that's what we're trying to do as an airline. We're moving passengers where they want to go, and we want to do it better than everybody else. So we strongly encourage our pilots to get out and meet those people. They can tell their stories. Tell tell our passengers who they are, a little bit about themselves, and hopefully, uh, like you and I did when we had our interaction, we can learn something from our past. You'll find more often than not that there's some very unique, interesting, and entertaining stories to learn from from everybody. And the more interaction we have like that. I think it, the better it is for the crews and for the passengers.
1: You know, like Brian, whenever I board an aircraft and United is my airline of choice, I always try to stop in the cockpit and say thank you and, and, and give a little gift. Usually I'm, I'm not as generous as Brian. I just have Ferrara Rochers or something like that. And the pilots have always been just so kind about it, usually sit me down in the left seat, make me take my picture. And sometimes you get some people that are that are so thankful. Uh, one of the pilots, the last time I think I flew back from the UK was on the 7.6, and he said, you know, we have Channel 9 going on. Do you know how to set it up? And he just walked me back to my seat and made sure it was working. I knew how to do it, but he, he just double-checked. And that kind of extra service has always just made United special. And I like to show my appreciation. And what's great is that when you show your appreciation, the pilots show there as well. Just the same thing with the FAs. The United FAs have always been just super. And uh, the service on board has always been great.
4: I'm glad to hear that because we we really do make an effort to, uh, to get out and make those connections and, and enjoy our time. Because if you don't, there's not a lot of point in doing this, right? (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) And in telling stories, the other day, someone was asking me about my most terrifying event on an airplane. I can honestly say I really haven't had a terrifying event. It was certainly exciting and fun when I've had my very first aborted landing or even having an aborted takeoff, right? It's a different sensation that you're used to going through when you're on an airplane. I've never experienced anything beyond really mild to moderate chop. Is there a story that you can tell over an event that you wish didn't happen?
4: You know, uh, I I fly a lot of uh, general aviation aircraft as well. I'm a uh, former pilot for the commemorative Air Force and tell you some stories that uh, that occurred there that probably would be better searched for another day. But, uh, you know, at the airlines, of course, we fly in all kinds of inclement weather. Uh, We're trained to do that. That's what we do. I wouldn't say that uh, there was any frightening experiences. I wouldn't put it that way. I've had a lot of learning experiences. I've dealt with things like lightning strikes and mechanical issues uh, that require you to kind of step up your game a little bit. I wouldn't say that there's anything that's frightening. We train continuously for uh, situations that could arise on the aircraft. And I can tell you, if you haven't had an opportunity yet to see the Flight Training Center in Denver, I would love to uh, find a way to get you guys out there to see it because it's an impressive facility that trains the best pilots in the world uh, how to fly these airplanes. And I think we do it better than anybody else. It's an incredibly impressive facility, and I would love to take you out there and show you.
2: Let's book it. I'm happy to get on an airplane and make that happen. Okay.
1: (laughs) I haven't been to Denver in a while, but like I said, I used to live in Pueblo, and back then, uh, you know, Pueblo has a nice runway down there, and it was back when United was still flying the uh, the dc C eight nineties and they would do their practice runs coming down over exactly where I lived, and I would see them doing touch-and-goes at the Pueblo airport, and it was just beautiful back there when, in the Stapleton days, and I'm sure you remember those days, too. Right. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about hiring pilots. And and one of the things that has come up in a lot of podcasts we talk to, uh, we, we, we listen to, and some pilots that we've spoken with is that pilots these days, many of them are very different from pilots from before. You started flying on steam gauges. You learned airmanship, and you learned how to fly an aircraft, and you take command of that aircraft. Many younger pilots these days, it seems, don't get that kind of experience based on some of the computer operations. And- Rather than being necessarily airmen, and I don't necessarily like that term because it can be considered sexist and I'm not sure what the correct term is, but rather than being that, rather than being pilots, they're aircraft operators is the way that I sometimes describe it. Have you noticed anything like that? And how does United handle that sort of thing in terms of teaching airmanship and piloting?
4: That's a very valid question. I see it this way. The technology that we have in the airplanes today makes the airlines and aviation in general safer than it's ever been in its history. If you look at uh, the statistics that we have today, there has never been a safer time to fly on an airplane. That's just a fact. So if you look at the individual pilots that, that are flying now, some of us still come up through the military, some of us still come up through general aviation. Regardless of where you start, Even today, with the technology we have, you're still going to be starting as an airman, learning to be an airman from day one. Now, the transition from those early days to a much more advanced flight deck happens much more rapidly. But the individual pilots still begin the same way that we did when I started. The advantage that the pilots have today over pilots of my generation is that they understand the technology the positive aspects of that technology better than maybe my generation did. There was a period of time when we were transitioning airline pilots from steam gauges on the seven older generation 737s, DC-9s, uh, 727s. Those were all steam gauge airplanes. And there was a period of time in the 90s when we were transitioning pilots that had never flown a glass cockpit. And I would say that it was probably a more difficult transition for those pilots to progress to the modern flight deck than it is for the new generation of pilots that are coming up today. It's an interesting dynamic, but one that in the end makes this an incredibly safe, modern environment that we're working in.
1: Do you feel that the the newer pilots have the same, and I'm not sure how to describe it, but feel for the aircraft that the older pilots did from having to really fly watching gauges as opposed to directing the the, the computer to to fly the airplane? With the auto takeoff and auto
2: land
4: button? (laughs) Well, we don't have auto, we don't do auto takeoff. We do have an auto land ability.
1: We, we all know, by the way, the the, the Airbus's. it's all push to take off, push to land. You know, it's not like it's, it's not they, they don't require any. No, well, we're kidding. But that's the big joke we have between our Airbus pilot friends and our Boeing pilot friends.
4: Through our AQP training program, you're still required to demonstrate your abilities as an airman. You have to demonstrate your ability to hand fly an airplane. That's part of the training environment. And it's not just in the initial training. Even when you go back for your recurrent, you're still having to demonstrate that you have that ability or that you still have that capability to, if things went really bad, you click it all off and you can fly that airplane. And that's something that's demonstrated by every single pilot in initial training as well as their recurrent training.
2: I think along those lines to pick up really where Micah left off, and this isn't going to be a fair question because I think I already know the answer to it. In 1989, aviation experienced a terrible disaster, United in particular. And that, of course, is the crash of United 232. So my parents were pretty good friends with Denny Fitch. And, you know, he was the captain who was in the back of the ill-fated DC-10. And he's really credited with the entire flight crew of saving that flight. But I think many people today don't think that new modern pilots, young pilots that have only flown on simulators and have only flown in glass cockpit, have those flying skills. So I guess maybe I'll turn the question around. It's like, how do you at United ensure that any pilot would be able to step into that position and do as great of a job as he did?
4: Yeah, that's definitely a story that is almost required study for any pilot these days. It's a testament to uh, not only his skill, but the training that uh, that he was offered as an airline pilot. And again, we train for scenarios on our flight deck extensively. We can't obviously recreate every scenario possible, but we do a uh, very good job of developing training curriculum that prepares our pilots for scenarios like that. I don't want to call it a standardized training program because they develop new scenarios so that the pilots that go back every nine months to the simulator are seeing something new each time. It keeps them on their toes. It keeps them trained up to speed. And it provides a situational awareness that you wouldn't have otherwise.
2: And that really leads to United having some of the best pilots in the world, right? I agree. Couldn't agree more.
1: No doubt about it. Earlier in the show, we were talking about, uh, well, a late SR-71 pilot, and you wanted to ask Chris a little bit about that. I just learned that Brian Shull passed,
2: and that was back in May. It's really unfortunate. And Brian was on Airplane Geeks episode 375. He told, I believe he told the story about doing his speed check with LA Center. And it's a fairly popular story where... Right. A guy in a Cessna is asking L.A. Center for a speed check. Then someone in a Beechcraft asked for their speed check. Then a F-18 asked for their speed check. And of course, his radio officer had to ask for their speed check. And he really said that that's what bound them as a working team. So I guess two questions for you. One. When you're changing first officers and captains all the time, how do you develop that sense of teamwork and being able to work together? The other question is really, what's the craziest thing you've ever heard on the radio?
1: (laughs)
4: Craziest thing I've ever heard. You know, that's a great story. And uh, if, if your readers have not heard that story, I would encourage them to go out and find that episode, and listen to him, give that, give the, or tell that story because it's a, it's, it's a great one. I'm not that good a comedian, so I'm not even going to try, but I can tell you from time to time, you do hear some entertaining things on the radio. I can think of one here recently when they were launching some of the Starlink satellites and I was flying across the Midwest and there was a line of those satellites. Perfect line. I uh, didn't have a clue what it was, Uh, We hadn't seen that yet. It was a new technology that they were launching these satellites in a string. And uh, some of the comments that I heard on the radio that night of people describing what they were seeing uh, was a bit comical because they were not only inquisitive, but they were uh, cautious about saying anything for obvious reasons. See, they didn't want it to appear as though uh, maybe they needed to go for a fitness for duty evaluation somewhere
1: (laughs) (laughs) But uh, They didn't want to have to meet with the assistant chief pilot is what they didn't want to do.
4: <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not that good a comedian. So I think I'd probably have to uh, rely on other people's stories there. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, but I think the other point was really building the crew resource management, right, and working as a team. So the other part of the question is, how do you ensure that when you're interchanging the positions all the time, how do you ensure that you have this great teamwork?
4: CRM obviously is critical in the operation of a, of a flight deck these days. Uh, it always has been, but but we have changed that dynamic quite a bit over the last couple of decades in the airlines. Years ago, when I started, it was it was a little more authoritarian on the flight deck as far as the captain's authority and that kind of thing. Now, in a modern flight deck, CRM is critical, and it becomes much more of a team collaborative effort. Obviously, the captain is still in charge and we expect him to be in charge, but it is a very collaborative environment. We train to a standard in CRM so that as you move from crew to crew, the dynamic is still the same. You're still, uh, I said earlier that we try and hold each other to a very high standard and CRM is part of that. We train to handle situations in specific manners. In a specific sequence and as long as everybody's flying to that same standard it's actually a very easy transition from from crew to crew obviously you know there's personalities that you're dealing with as well but we're all aviators and uh whether you started in my generation or you're starting in today's generation it really doesn't matter you're still an aviator and we all have things to teach each other And as well, as long as you're willing to, uh, accept those criticisms, because we do have criticisms, right? We debrief, we brief a flight, uh, we conduct the flight and then we debrief a flight and we do that on every single leg. And as long as you're willing to accept those criticisms and learn from those things that you brief, uh, it makes us all better across the board. It makes you a better aviator. It makes you a better employee, makes you a better individual. So
2: and now having a first officer really stand up or say something to a captain that's now possible whereas maybe 30 50 years ago not so much
4: we encourage it we encourage that interaction because not everybody's perfect you're never going to have a perfect flight right you learn that in the primary flight training there is no such thing as a perfect flight if there is you're doing something wrong so we encourage that interaction and uh, and again Uh, We can can learn from each other that way. I do have quite a bit of general aviation experience as well. General aviation is one of those things that can keep a pilot involved in the hand-flying aspects of aviation like you were asking about earlier. Uh, I'm a big fan of general aviation. I enjoy doing it when I can find the time to do it. That's why I've flown for organizations like the Commemorative Air Force in the past. I'd like to think that maybe one of these days I'll find time to go do that again because I really enjoy the Warbird flying.
1: Well, so do we. We're, we're a huge fan of Warbirds. And in fact, I was going to ask you, if you don't mind saying, what aircraft did you fly with the CAF?
4: I owned my own U-3. If you're familiar with that aircraft, it's basically a military version of the 310. I flew the BT-13, T-6 Texan, J, same airplane, C-47, and the B-17. Unfortunately, I was I was one of the pilots on the B-17 that crashed in Dallas of last year. That was a very unfortunate
1: event. Yeah, no, I uh, appreciate what you're saying. I Just a week before 909 crashed, I interviewed Mac, uh, stood right under that engine with him that caused the problems. And uh, yeah, hard to talk about. But uh, Mac was a was a very neat guy. Yeah, he really was. But yeah, you, you mentioned a couple of my favorites. I had a chance to sit in the right seat and flying in a C-47, and uh, there's nothing like it.
2: I'm not sure where you are, but have you ever been out to Chino to the Plains of Fame?
1: I have several times. Have you offered
2: to fly with them?
4: It's uh, unfortunately it's just time constraints for me right now. I'm also I I join. I'm actually a member of the commemorative Air Force Wing in Camarillo, up on the north side. There have not had a chance to really go out and join them to participate. But they have a fantastic organization out there. And if anybody, uh, any of the listeners are interested in the Warburg community here in Los Angeles area, I would strongly encourage them to make a trip out to Chino or out to Camarillo, either one. Fantastic museums out in those areas.
2: Yeah, definitely. And the folks in Chino, the Plains of Fame, they're doing their fundraiser and getting ready to open up a new museum up in Santa Maria. And that'll be a really nice addition to the collection and give them a lot more warehouse space to show off these beautiful birds.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Now, we all know there's not that many of them left and they're not building any new ones. So, yeah, take advantage sure. of while you can.
2: Now, one of the things with the retirement age, Unfortunately, you guys as pilots have this involuntary retirement they have to go through. There's a pilot shortage. Would you ever consider working out of flight school and training pilots? And do you think that this might be a solution towards the pilot shortage is just getting more of of you commercial pilots back in the teaching field?
4: You know, I I would definitely entertain it. As a matter of fact, I have several friends that have retired from the airline here in the last year, two years that are teaching as flight instructors now they're in the, in the uh, corporate world. They're not teaching general aviation. Although, I'll tell you that we have a lot of current United pilots that are flying, they're doing dual duty as DPEs, the designated pilot examiners for several FISDOs around the country. I'm uh, telling in Houston, the majority of the DPEs out of the Houston FISDO are current or retired United pilots. Yeah, that's something I would certainly consider doing.
1: You see, you start a career as a CFI, you end your career as a CFI, one way or another. (laughs) Hey, we're running out of time shortly. So, Captain Chris, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Appreciate the invite. It's been enjoyable. Thank you both.
2: Kevin, Chris, yeah, again, thank you so much for the Challenge Coins and the book that you sent me. They are definitely prized possessions. I really, really appreciate them. I appreciate you coming on the show, sharing with our listeners a little bit about what you do, your career, and all good things with United.
4: Let's stay in touch. Maybe Maybe we'll have something for you in the future.
2: Hey, I'm serious about going out to Denver. I would absolutely love to bring some recording equipment and... Yeah, visit the site and and do whatever out there. Yeah.
4: We'll see what we can do to make that
0: happen. Again, we want to thank United Airlines for allowing Captain Chris to speak with us. Having had an aviation career at a Fortune 50 corporation, I know very well how difficult these things can be to get approved. Thank you, United. All right. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we're planning to return next week to our usual format. We're really looking forward to that. Our website is airplanegeeks.com and our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. So please join us again next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody.